Heavenly Father, good to be here. We pray your spirit lead, guide, and direct in all ways and all things. You teach, we listen, and Lord, help us to walk out of here uh, just with a deeper understanding of who you are, and then to go apply that in all that we do and all that we say for you in your name. Amen. All right, two weeks ago, uh, we were in Acts 16, and we talked about Paul is on a second missionary journey. He is with uh, Silas, he's with Timothy, and he's with Luke. Please do note, remind yourself in verse 10, how it goes from third person to first person. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, including that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this missionary journey now is Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Now, on the back of your Bible, you probably have some maps, and one of them will probably have Paul's missionary journey. You can see the route that he's going to take in verses 11 through 12. We're going to read a lot of towns. And if you look at your map there, you'll be able to follow along with that of what he's talking about. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about understanding and knowing God's will for your life. Because if you go back and remind yourself, in verse 6, they wanted to go into Galatia, and the Holy Spirit said no. Then in verse 7, they wanted to go into Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit said no. So he has a vision in verse 9, a man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And then they determined that's where the Lord wants them to go. One of the questions I get a lot as a pastor, how do I know God's will for my life? Two weeks ago... That's what we got in. I encourage you to listen to that online. Grab a copy of that if you want to, just to see, praying about where the Lord is calling you. Because I tell you, you you can live the Christian life. You can be saved, born again, and not understand your calling. And there's such a sense of emptiness with that. Know where you're called. Go where you're called. And that's the idea of it's going. Remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go make disciples, not stay. Now, what does it mean, go? Does that mean you have to go overseas? No. You may be going to work to make disciples. You may be going to your neighbor's house. You may be going to Walmart. You may be making disciples in your own home. But the idea of it shows an effort of going. We just don't sit here. We say, Lord, how do you want to use me? Because I am yours. So they feel led to go down to Macedonia, and that's where they go. So that's where we pick it up in verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of what part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. Once again, you can follow your map there in Macedonia. Getting into Europe area now. So the gospel going into Europe, this is a colony of Rome. Now, the way that Paul normally does his missionary journeys is he goes into a town and he finds the local synagogue. Please remember the difference between synagogue and temple. Temple is one building in Jerusalem where all the sacrifices are done. That's where the high priest is at, the priesthood, etc. Synagogues, for lack of a better word, were local little churches that were set up. This came out of the time when the Jews were in Babylonian captivity. They didn't have a temple. So what they did is they set up these areas all around where they could at least go, have time of prayer, have a scripture reading, and it became very normal then. So all these towns that were far away from Jerusalem had a local synagogue. So that's normally what Paul did. That's what Jesus did. You go find the synagogue, and you start preaching Jesus Christ to them. But this one's a little different, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. We don't want to infer too much into scripture. But like I mentioned to you with the synagogues, that's the normal setup. They're getting a little bit farther away here from Jerusalem. So, not in the Bible, but Jewish sources say that you needed to have ten men to have a synagogue. It looks like they didn't even have ten Jewish men here. That's why they ended up on the riverside 
And next thing you know, they're witnessing to the women. And next thing you know, Lydia's getting saved. Now, why do I bring this up? Remind yourself once again of verse 9. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. The vision was a man saying, Come help us. Paul shows up. He can't find any men. So he's now on the riverside witnessing to the ladies. You have to understand that sometimes the way the Lord's calling go does not go the way you expect or plan. You just have to accept that. And so sometimes you take that step of faith assuming, expecting one thing, and it is not anything like you think it's going to be in any way whatsoever. That's hard for some of us. Paul went expecting a man from Macedonia, and he finds a bunch of ladies along the river. Now, it's still fruitful, but was it the fruit that he was expecting? A few years ago, it's always probably been longer than that, maybe 10 years ago or so, we kind of felt led to uh, do a Bible study over in the Deschler area. So that's what we did. We set it up on Saturday nights. And uh, one of the local churches was nice enough to let us go there. And so over the summer, we did a study through the book of Revelation. We had a little ministry for the younger kids. And then we were going to do something for the teens as well. And we really felt like the Lord just said to go over there and do this. And there was one individual that was really, really just passionate about this. And really passionate for the youth, for the teens over there. And just that that's what they really wanted. And so we went over there and we started the study up. And from the adult side... You know what? There was fruit. You know, people came out on Saturday night, and we got a chance to teach through Revelation. God is good. Amen. From the little kids' Bible study, hey, some little kids came out, and we had some neat opportunities there just to really plant seeds in little kids. From the teen perspective, didn't go exactly as we thought it would go. This individual, after a couple weeks, came up to me and was extremely disappointed and extremely bothered and quit helping with it. And, and I said, why, why are you done? And they said, because it, it, there's, there's no fruit there. And I said, there's fruit. It's just not the fruit you wanted. See, that's the problem. Sometimes the fruit that we get in our lives is not the fruit we want, but it's the fruit that God says is what's the best. And we should just be happy that there's any fruit in any way whatsoever. And so, therefore, Lord, this is not what I hoped for. This is not what I planned for. This is not what I expected. But there's fruit. You're getting the glory. People are getting saved. Amen. I just need to accept this. That's really hard for some people because they have their plan, their expectation, and it doesn't go that way. And since it doesn't go that way, well, then I'm just done. No. Can you imagine Paul showing up in Macedonia and saying, where's the guys? Well, we don't have a synagogue. Well, then I'm leaving. No. Okay, this isn't what I signed up for, but I'm going to go to the riverside. I hear there's a group of proselyte Jews out there praying. Let's go witness to them. And that's what he does. And the fruit that comes out of that. Go with me to 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians 3. So Lydia gets saved. Lydia becomes quite the gal. In a few verses, she opens up her house to them. We read that. At the end of this chapter, they need another place to stay. She opens up her house again. Obviously, a church gets planted in Thyatira because it's mentioned again in the book of Revelation. We know Lydia must have been a woman of some means. She was a seller of purple. Purple was the most expensive dye. That's why when you look at royalty a few thousand years ago, they always wore purple. It was a status symbol. She obviously had her own house, so there was some status there as well. What a blessing that is. We don't hear about Lydia going overseas to spread the gospel. We don't hear about Lydia doing this. Lydia takes what she has, and she uses it for the Lord. She has a house. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke need a place to stay. You can stay at my house. In a little bit, they're going to get out of prison. They need a place to stay. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, you can come stay at my house. And plus, it says there later on that the brethren are with her. The brethren. We have no brethren at the beginning of the chapter. We have brethren by the end of the chapter. Lydia obviously went out and shared the gospel. 
So Lydia is a great example of, of where you're at, witness, represent, use the tools you have. Old Testament talks about a prophet's room. You have an extra house in your extra uh, room in your house? Use it for the Lord. You got extra time, energies, finances, resources. Use it for the Lord. Take what you have and use it for him. But back to Paul going over looking for the man and finding the women. Let's remind ourselves of this. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? Who are we? We're nothing. It's all about the Lord. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. See, sometimes I plant, sometimes I water, but it's ultimately the Lord. Remember what we read there in Acts 16. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. Please remember, you can't save anybody. It's between them and Jesus. Your job is to plant. Your job is to water. God opens the heart. So our job is to get in there and plant and water. So then verse 7, Then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but it's God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. It's a team effort. It's fun to pick the fruit off the tree. I, I love leading people to Christ. I love praying with them. and it, their, their lives change instantaneously. But most of the ministry we do is planting and watering. Because God gives the increase. You have somebody you really want to see come to know the Lord. Plant, water. You may not be the one that gets to lead them to the Lord. You may not even see it happen, but you trust the Lord is moving and working. I've shared this story with you many times before. We used to have a gal that came out here, and for years we ministered to her. For years ministered to her. There are a lot of dark times, discouraging times, depressing times, lots of phone calls, lots of meetings, lots of just difficulties. One Sunday she's not here. She calls me that evening. She says, you won't believe what happened. I said, what happened? She goes, I went to my aunt's church, and guess what happened? What happened? She goes, I got saved. Now, you know what my first reaction was mentally? Oh, no, you didn't. I'm the one that stayed up with you. I'm the one that prayed with you. I'm the one that talked to you. I'm the one. If you're going to get saved by anybody, it's going to be with me because you're not getting saved by anybody else. My job is to plant water. And she got saved. And amen. It was very eye-opening to me because there's been many times that people have come out here and I'd meet them for one Sunday. And next thing you know, we finish with an altar call. They come forward. Why? Because somebody has planted and watered for years in them. So just remember, you're planting in people, you're watering in people. It's God who gives the increase. We are a team. We are one. It's not a competition. Yes, it's fun to pick the fruit off the tree. But somebody needs to put the seed in the ground and somebody needs to water it. Verse 8, each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. You just do your part. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the goal. You lay the foundation of Jesus Christ. You plant the seeds. You water the seeds. God gives the increase. Paul goes over to Macedonia looking for the man. He finds the ladies along the river. Next thing you know, they're saved. Be prepared for whatever God calls you. It may not be what you were thinking. It may not be what you were expecting. But it's what God calls you. Jump back to Acts 16 now. Verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. It's between them and Jesus. What happens then? Verse 15. She and her household were baptized. That quickly. See, so often in the Bibles, you see people get saved and you see them immediately get baptized. And some people start thinking that baptism is part of salvation. It's not. It's a completely separate thing. But what would happen 2,000 years ago, 
The baptism was such a huge deal. It showed the world you were making a public confession of Christ. Nowadays, people treat baptism as some secondary thing that maybe they'll get to sometime if it works out. See, thousands of years ago, you would get saved, and it's not uncommon, you see in the book of Acts, for them to immediately go get baptized. Because it was such a life-changing event, they wanted to go publicly show the world that symbolic act of being baptized. Now, we do baptisms out here in the summer. We go over to Bill and Shirley's house. We do one with the food and the fellowship. And it's, I love it. It's one of my favorite things we do. But then off-season, if people feel led to get baptized, we got the big old water trough. Rich will heat the water up to 90-plus degrees. And we'll go back into the fellowship hall and we'll baptize you. Because we want it to be something where you stop and say, I'm making this public declaration of who I am following Jesus Christ. I use this example with my boys all the time. If they wear a jersey of a football player, they put that jersey on. It does not mean they're on that team. It does not mean they're on that player. They're identifying with that team, saying this is the team I follow. Baptism is that. It does not save you. It identifies you in following Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you want to get baptized, let us know. We'll get the water trough out. We'll heat it up. And we'll all celebrate when you get baptized. Because it is something that you want to identify with. And like I said, so often I see people get saved and or maybe been saved and we talk about baptism i don't know i've been thinking about it maybe i will sometime let me know when the next one's going to be i'm not trying to push it because it's between you and the lord but it's a wonderful step in your walk with christ to publicly identify who you are and following jesus lydia gets saved she gets baptized you're going to find out here in a little bit they get saved and they get baptized immediately in the middle of the night it was that big a deal so what a blessing this is all because why the holy spirit led He goes back to verse 6, the same chapter. Let's go to Galatia. Holy Spirit says no. Let's go to Bithynia. Holy Spirit says no. Okay, we'll go to Macedonia. Okay, we'll go to Macedonia. They go to Macedonia, and next thing you know, it's a group of ladies by the river praying. But that's who the Lord led them to. All because Paul was willing to be spirit-led and realize what matters most is seeing souls get saved. So that's the same heart we're supposed to have today. We're supposed to be led by the Spirit and make sure we see people get saved in the Lord. Problem is, we're so busy living our lives in other ways that we forget that the most important thing are souls getting saved and people knowing Jesus Christ. Instead, we have a to-do list that kind of takes up too much of our time, and the Lord almost becomes secondary. I see so many people that are saved, and I firmly believe they love the Lord. But the idea of truly living for Him, it's almost a secondary thing. And when you really look at these people in the book of Acts, they really stopped and said, this changes my life. Every interaction, every conversation I have with people is an opportunity to represent the Lord. And sometimes it may happen, sometimes it may not. I plant the seeds, I water the seeds. I'm just available, Lord. Can you go with me to Romans 10, please? I want to build on this a little bit. Remember how simple this was. Paul was led, he went. They speak the words. Verse 14, Lydia hears. Verse 14, Lydia's heart is open. Lydia gets saved. Simple concept. Someone's led to go. Somebody listens. Somebody's heart is open. Now, next thing you know, they're saved. Romans 10, verse 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You want your heart to be saved? Then whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a great verse. Okay, well, how are they supposed to know about it? Verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how they shall believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How are they supposed to come to know Christ unless someone is telling them about Christ? That's our job. 
So whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But the next verse is really simple. How are they supposed to hear about it? Well, now go to verse 15. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? People need to be sent. Now, as we mentioned earlier in the message, sent does not necessarily mean overseas. You could be sent to the grocery store. You could be sent to your neighbor. You could be sent from your bedroom to the living room to talk to your unbelieving spouse. You could be sent to work. But you need to go. It's the Great Commission. Go. Not stay. And it's just being open and available for any interaction you have to represent the Lord. Because take a look at verse 15. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. It's a beautiful thing. Once again, I see so many people that are saved, but they don't have that fulfillment yet in life. And they see Christianity, and it's just something they do. And they're saying, is this all there is? And it's kind of like I go to church, I read, I do some devotions, I pray. Where's this abundant life that's, how am I any different than the world? Because we go. We're sent. And when you share Christ with somebody and you impact eternity, all of a sudden you realize that situation at work, yeah, that, that really didn't matter as much as I thought it did. That health issue that's been bringing me down, well, there's somebody who's going to die and go to hell. I, I want to go represent the Lord in all I do and say. And it's just, you never know what's going to happen. Sometimes it's exactly the way you plan. And other times it just takes you a different direction. You don't know. I'll share a quick example in my life. I have this um, love-hate relationship with getting my hair cut. Just follow along with me for a little bit, okay? I hate sitting for it. I think it takes too long. It makes me itchy, scratchy. I don't like it. And so I only get a haircut when Dawn says I look homeless. She goes, you need to go get a haircut. And she says, you need to go trim the beard. You need to get a haircut. You need to go. Now, she's willing to do it, but... It takes so long, and I just get agitated, and I just don't like the, the black thing on me, and I just don't like it, and it just gets to me. So if I'm out doing a hospital visit, Dawn, I'll say, I'll call her up and say, hey, I'm done with the hospital visit. And she goes, okay, you're in town. Go get a haircut. And so a few weeks ago, I went to go get a haircut. And like I said, it's a love-hate thing. I, I don't like going in. I don't like the idea of paying for it. I, you know, I'm like, just let's shave my head. I'm cool with that, you know? A few years ago, I looked in the mirror, and I thought I was starting to go bald. I was, and I was kind of happy because I thought, you know what? It's one less thing to worry about. So I went and told Dawn. I said, I think I'm starting to lose my hair. And she made a face. And I said, would that bother you? She goes, yeah, that would bother me. So pray for my marriage. But the point is, <laughs> I, I'm just not a fan of haircuts. So it's a love-hate thing. But once I get in there, I'm excited because it's one-on-one with somebody. And I tell you, I'm not making this up. Every time I get my hair cut, the Lord does something. I, I've had a chance to talk to somebody who's given up on God. Had a chance to talk with the guy who's openly homosexual. I, I had a chance to talk to other people. It's just always something. So I'm always excited about what it's going to be. So I go in there a couple weeks ago to get my hair cut. And here, out comes the lady. And I just, the way I start to share crisis, I just start asking questions. And I know I probably sound creepy. You know, it's like, hey, what time do you get off work? You know, I mean, I know I probably sound, you know, like, how long are you here for or whatever? So I just wait for that one thing where it, it opens a spiritual door. So she said, you know, it was kind of a slow day and she's reading. Okay, you're reading. Okay, what are you reading? Well, she's reading this, this Christian book. So she's reading this very well-known Christian book. So I said, oh, I said, so are you a Christian? She goes, yeah. I was so disappointed. <laughs> I, I'm paying money. I'm sitting in this chair. And you're already saved. It's like, move me over to the next lady. Because this is not... 
So next thing you know, she's telling her testimony. I'm sharing my testimony. She's talking about what she's doing at church. I'm talking about what I'm doing at church. And next thing you know, it's just here's two Christians just having this open conversation about the Lord in front of everybody else. And it's just, we're just going to talk about who God is because we're not ashamed of the gospel. And so I went in with the mindset, am I going to get this great testimony of this unsaved person and led to the Lord while getting their hair cut? And I'm just going to take the little hose thing and baptize you right now. And, you know, it's going to be amazing. Instead, it's a born-again woman who loves the Lord, loves her husband, and is raising her kids in Christ. And guess what? We get to talk openly about the Lord. See, so often when we talk about proclaiming the gospel, we think it always means reaching the lost. That is definitely a part of it. Part of proclaiming the gospel is, let me share what Jesus is doing in my life. And you may already be saved, but I just want to tell you the good news of what Christ is doing in my life. Other people hear this. The book of Malachi talks about how God writes has a book of remembrance, and we as believers talk about him. He writes it down because he loves hearing his kids talk about him. So did it work out the way Paul thought? I don't know. It doesn't look like it. There's no man from Macedonia yet, but there's a lot of fruit. So just remember sometimes the path God takes you is not the path you were thinking of and looking for, but fruit can still come out of that. All right. It completely changes subjects here a little bit. And if once again, if we had time, we would do the rest of Acts 16. We don't. So I'm going to stop halfway through to set you up for next week. But it changes directions here. Verse 16. Now, it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaimed us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes, commanded them to be beaten with rods, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is ministry at its finest. You're leading people to the Lord. They're getting baptized, and a couple days later, you're beaten, whipped, and you're thrown in prison. And when I say there's ups and downs in ministry, I don't mean that in the sense of emotional ups and downs. This is just the reality of life. You could go to work one day, and God is opening doors, and you're planting seeds, watering them, and you're seeing the gospel go out. You go the next day, and it's borderline getting fired because they can't stand you. So you go to one family reunion, and it's like, wow, everybody wants to hear about it. I had this great time to talk, and you go back to the next one, and no one wants to be near you. This is the ups and downs of it. And what happens is, always remember, the enemy is waiting at the bottom of the mountain. If you have a mountaintop experience, when you come down off that mountaintop experience, there's always going to be the enemy waiting for you. And this is what happens. Verses 11 through 15 are God-ordained. God opens the heart. They hear the gospel. A church plant happens. Amen. A few days later, you're beaten and thrown in prison. You've got to remember, Jesus Christ is constant. This world isn't. This world is up, down, all over the place. But Jesus Christ is constant. He's your sure foundation. You've got to remember that. So what's going on here? Demonically possessed girl that's telling the future, it looks like, in verses 16 and 17. Demons cast out. You'd think people would be happy about it. But they saw in verse 19 they lost their money. 
So let's make up some accusations. They're Jews. Verse 21, they're, they're rebelling against the government. Let's beat them, throw them in prison. Not just beat them and throw them in prison. Let's beat them. Let's lay stripes on them. That's past beating. And then what's do in the inner prison and their feet in stocks? All because why? They cast a demon out of a girl. That seems like a good thing to do. Let's break this down a little bit here. First things first. Spirit of divination met us with brought our masters much profit by fortune telling. Verse 16. Let's go back to the scriptures on this one. I'm going to give you lots of verses here over the next few minutes. If you're a note taker, write them down. Some of them we may go to. A lot of them I'm just going to make reference to. Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, 22 through 23. God is the only one who can tell the future. In Isaiah 41, God makes it abundantly clear that the way you know he's a God and the way you know the Bible is true is because it has prophecy. If you go look at the other major religious books of the world, they may have some prophecies in them, but they're not, first off, 100% accurate, and a lot of them don't even have prophecy in it. God says, you want to know I'm real, you want to know I'm true, because I do something other people don't, I prophesize. So that's why you see Satan trying to attempt to do the same thing, because that would make him like God. Can Satan do that? No. Let's remind ourselves a little bit on Satan here. First off, Satan is a created being. We have a tendency to forget that. I grew up as a kid, and for some reason, I always put Satan and Jesus as almost equals. Jesus created Satan. Jesus is the creator. Satan is the creation. Plus, please remember that. I don't want to get into a lot of theology here, but there's some big fancy terms. Omniscient, omnipresent. This idea of omniscient, all-knowing. Only God is all-knowing. Not Satan, he's a created being. Omnipresent, everywhere at once. God's everywhere at once. Satan isn't, he's a created being. So we need to remember this. And last one is omnipotent. God is all-powerful, Satan isn't. So then how in the world can we have this looking like people can tell the future? It still happens today. Now, it may not happen the way we see here. I think in other parts of the world it does. But this idea of what we see right here in Acts 16, no, it's a little bit nicer now. They have really nice signs that say psychics with lights out in front of them. You can see their ads on TV, and they're all around. And I tell you this, what do you do? Every time I drive by one, I just pray against it in the name of Jesus. It's not of the Lord in any way whatsoever. Well, then how does it look like it is of the Lord? This is what happens. People come up and say, they'll show me these videos, they'll tell me about these people, and they'll say, look at that, this is true. They, they said these things. First off, let's deal with a couple facts here. First off, the first fact of the Bible is God is 100% accurate. 100% accurate. I never met anybody else who is. If you throw out enough vague little prophecies, predictions, whatever, you'll hit a couple. So what happens then? Well, according to the Old Testament, if you got one prophecy wrong, you're supposed to be stoned to death. Talk about really limiting false prophets. You have no error in any way whatsoever. Nowadays, we focus on, oh, look at what they said. It's amazing. Did you forget the other five things they said that don't even make sense and didn't line up? You've got to be careful about that. I remember back in high school, I had a teacher that wanted to prove a point about horoscopes. And so he got out and he divided us up and said, what group are you, what sign you are, or whatever that junk is, I don't know. And they said, okay, here's your horoscope, now read it. So we would read our horoscopes or whatever thing. And he says, now, now what do you think? How, how accurate is that? And it's like some of the people are like, oh, that's amazing. How close and how accurate that is. And he said, I just want to let you know I gave you guys the wrong sign horoscope just to prove a point. And that's what he did. Now, the problem is you run into some people and they just swear by this stuff, that this is so true, this is so amazing, how can it be, etc. Please remember a couple points here about the enemy. First thing that we see, please remember once again, he is a created being, but he has been watching human nature for 6,000 years. He's been watching human, nation, human nature for 6,000 years. Don and I have been married for 21. When any restaurant we go to, 
I probably with 100% accuracy can tell you what she's going to order. That's only after 21 years. Imagine following human nature for 6,000 years. You're going to get pretty good at predicting human nature. Now, you may stop and say, okay, yeah, but we haven't really changed in 6,000 years. We're still sinners. The sin just happens in a little bit different way. We talk about militant Islam today. We had that back in the Old Testament. That was with the Philistines that were willing to kill for their religion. We talk about abortion today. Well, we had sacrificing your kids to Molech in the Old Testament. You know, we talk about, you know, maybe homosexuality today. Well, we had Sodom and Gomorrah. Things hasn't changed. It's just changed the way it's presented and done. It's still the same. So, therefore, Satan's been watching human nature for 6,000 years. He's pretty good at that, and I don't mean that as a compliment to him. Number two, he has quite the system set up, the Bible says. The Bible says when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him. Now, how many is that? Well, the Bible says the amount of angels are innumerable. So if you're good at math, figure out what one-third of innumerable is. I don't know what that is, but it's a lot. He has quite the system set up that can cover quite the geographical area. The book of Daniel tells us this. So he has quite the system set up, quite the communication system, studying human nature for a thousand years. He is good at what he does, and once again, that's not a compliment. So therefore, what are we supposed to do with this information? Next verse, 1 Corinthians 2.11. 1 Corinthians 2.11. We're not supposed to be ignorant of his devices. When the subject of Satan comes up, people just don't want to talk about it sometimes. It seems like you have these extremes in Christianity. You have the one extreme of where Satan is everywhere. Like the light bulb won't work. Why? It must be Satan. Maybe the light bulb went out. I don't know. Let's just change the light bulb and see. Then you have the other extreme that don't even want to acknowledge he exists. Because it's almost a fearful thing. Paul says, do not be ignorant of his devices. So let's not be ignorant of it. So let's talk about who he is. John 8, 44. John 8, 44 says he's the father of lies. He's been the father from the beginning. Satan twists. That's what he does. He takes an element of truth and he twists it. If you go out and start talking to the Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses, they have an element of truth that's been twisted. And that's exactly what he does. He still does that today. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, that Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. Satan pretends to be good, that good angel of light, and it says that even his followers do that. So when we hear all these reports and all these stories about people talking to angels and they come back and they say, this is what the angel said, and, the, and it's like, that, that doesn't line up with Scripture. Well, that's what the angel said. Well, who were you talking to? 2 Corinthians 11 says you could have been talking to the enemy there. Think about how many, once again, false religions, false cults have started with somebody talking to an angel. That's why Paul said in Galatians 2,000 years ago, even if an angel appears to you and preaches some other type of gospel, let that person be accursed. So he masquerades as an angel of life. Well, here's the problem. Verse 17, listen to what this girl's saying. These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaimed us the way of salvation. That's truth. She's not lying. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed us the way of salvation. That's what Satan does. He takes truth. Then he twists it. Well, how is it being twisted? Because you have this demonic girl following Paul, crying out. How do you think that's going to go from a ministry standpoint? One pastor said this, you never want a demonic letter of reference. This is why when Jesus would cast out demons in, in Luke 4 and Mark 1, he always told them they're not allowed to talk. Because these demons would see Jesus and say, you're the Messiah. Yeah, Jesus says, I don't want your letter of reference. 
We got this Signet Bible study going on over Tuesday, and uh, Brian Fraley was teaching it last Tuesday. He made a really great point. He said it's the Holy Spirit's job to point people towards Jesus, not demons. You know, you don't want your witnessing done through demonic forces. They'll eventually twist it. You want the Holy Spirit to do that. So Paul does not need this element of truth being spoken by demonic, so he casts it out. And it says, greatly annoyed, that word can be translated exasperated, troubled, pained. Remember what Ephesians 6 says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of this world. It is a a spiritual battle on a regular basis. This starts to bother people a little bit. And at this point, sometimes people get a little weird, a little nervous about this conversation. This is the beauty of going verse by verse through the Bible. Because if this became just a simple topical Sunday, well, why did James pick demons? It's right here in the Bible, so let's talk about it. So instead of getting worked up about it, remember Paul said, don't be ignorant. What else? 2 Timothy 1 says, 1, seven says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. So there's nothing to be afraid of. Nothing. You, you serve the God of the universe that created the heavens and the earth, that created the enemy. You, you have nothing to be afraid of. In fact, 1 John 4.4 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now think that through. Greater is he that is in you. Who lives inside of you? As a born-again believer, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Who is in the world? According to the Bible, that's the enemy. God, Satan. Holy Spirit lives inside of me. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I don't have to worry about this in any way whatsoever. I just need to go represent the Lord. Does that mean that the enemy cannot bother Christians? Well, there's a great passage in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, where Paul says he was buffeted by a messenger of the enemy. That means beaten. doesn't say he was possessed by him. He says he was beaten. He was buffeted by it. It's the same word you use to describe the beating that Jesus went through. The enemy can try to buffet us, try to beat us, but he can't possess us. Can you imagine that? And I know some people disagree with this, and that's fine, but can you imagine the enemy coming in and pushing the Holy Spirit out? The creation taking over the Creator? doesn't work that way. You can be buffeted, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So what do you do when you run into this stuff? You're going to run into it. You may not realize you're running into it, because once again, I believe here in America that the enemy knows he needs to do this a little more um, suave, I should say. I think in other parts of the world, it's a little more open. We have this devotional that we like to read with the boys that's written by missionaries from all over the world. And some of the stories they tell, um, Satan's not trying to hide anything in other parts of the world. Over here, it's a little more discreet. Masquerades as an angel of light. I just know in my years of ministry, I have run into junk. I've run into people, and I walk away from those conversations saying, something's not right with that guy. Something's not right. You're in the middle of the conversation, there's just there's not a piece. You realize that this is something different. This is not just talking to normal, not believing person. There's something deeper going on here at this moment, at this time. And we need to be spiritually ready and prepared for this. That's why it says in Matthew 17 and Mark 9, you're supposed to be fasted up and you're supposed to be prayed up because you don't know when you're going to run into stuff. You've heard me make this example before. If you're supposed to be prayed up and fasted and ready for this, well, how is that supposed to happen? You start talking to someone, and you realize there's something else going on here behind the scenes. You can't tell the person, can you hold on a second? I'm going to go fast over supper tonight so that way I can be ready to talk to you tonight. You need to be in preparation for this before. So something I've started doing is I take a meal a week, and I fast over it for whatever's going to come my way that I don't even know about. I know it's going to happen. 
I've seen it happen. I need to be prepared for it. I need to be ready. So I take one meal a week. I fast over that meal. And I give the week over to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know who I'm going to talk to this week. I don't know who I'm going to run into this week. I don't know what I'm going to run into this week. So I want to do what your word says, Matthew 17, Mark 9. I want to be fasted and prayed up and ready for whatever is coming that I don't even know about. So what's the purpose of that fasting? Are you trying to impress God? I didn't have chicken and nuggets today, Lord. You owe me. No, that's not what it means. You take the time that you would have spent feeding yourself physically, you feed yourself spiritually. The time you would have spent preparing the meal, the time you would have spent eating the meal, the time you would have spent cleaning up after the meal, that is now time you say, Lord, I want to invest this time in you because I want to have more time with you for you to speak to me, to lead me, to guide me, to direct me, to prepare me for what's coming that I don't even see. So I'm fasting and praying now and preparation. And I tell you, take a meal a week and do that. Get ready, because you don't know what's going to come. Once again, it's not that you're impressing God with going without food. You're saying, Lord, I'm willing to let my flesh go and focus on the spiritual side, because that's more important. So Paul does this amazing miracle, but we live in a fallen, evil world. You guys know that. And you go out there to proclaim the light of the gospel, there's going to be pushback. This pushback right here is pretty severe. Beating, verse uh, 22. Stripes, verse 23, which probably means that they started laying their back open with whips. Verse 24. Inner prison, not the outer prison. Most secure place they can. Feet in stocks. Just put this in perspective. They've been beaten. Back's been laid open. They have not had medical care. We know that's going to come up in a little bit, so we know they haven't. And now they are feet in stocks in the inner prison. Why? Because they cast a demon out of a girl. Now, we're going to stop at this point because I want to get you ready for next week. Because look what they do in verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I want to remind you as our final point as we prepare for next week, the idea of glorying in tribulations. That when you go through a difficult time, spiritually, emotionally, or physically, it's an opportunity for you to let your light shine. When we start going through difficult times, spiritually, emotionally, or physically, we usually become very selfish. It's all about us. This is what I can't do. This is what I want to do and I can't. Woe is me. And we focus on that. Instead of singing hymns to God at midnight because other people are listening. That's going to be your powerful testimony right there. Can you go with me to James, please? Last verse here just to set the tone for next week. James, please. Simple, straightforward. James 1. James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God allows these things as a witnessing tool to others and allows it to grow you deeper in your faith than what you realized. Are they pleasant? They are not pleasant. We'll get into that next week. That's why they're called trials. We're grieved by them. They're difficult. Now, what this means is this, right here, right now. I'm going to tell you something I've learned in 20 years of teaching. I have to live the message before I teach it, or I have to live the message after I teach it. Some of you are sitting here this morning, and you're going through a trial, and now your eyes are being opened, saying, Okay, Lord, I've been the beaten, I've been stripes, I'm in the inner prison, 
but I'm not singing to you right now. I want to be a light and a witness during this time. Pray over that this week. Some of you came in today, and you're in the great season of life. I'm really sorry about your upcoming week. <laughs> be prepared. It's coming. And you may say, oh, no, no, I'm not I'm saying it. It's, it's going to happen. You guys know it's going to happen eventually. There's going to be eventually be a time in your life where it's difficult. It is going to happen. You're in a season of health right now. Sickness will come. And when you're sick, laying on the couch, you can't remember what it feels like to be healthy. There will be some type of physical malady that's going to strike you at some time. And you're going to forget how good it felt just to get up, sit, walk, run, do whatever. Right now, you have this blessed relationship that may fall apart. And you're going to forget how good it can be in the Lord. So you know it's coming, so get prayed up, get ready in God's goodness. And that's what we're going to get into next week, is I want us to be able to, as individuals, as in a church as well, that when we're beaten and in stripes and in the inner prison and stocks, that we're still singing hymns to the Lord. Because why? The prisoners are listening. And that's part of our light and witness and how we handle it. I'm giving you the homework now to get prepared for what the Lord's going to have in store next week. Get prayed up, get ready, get prepared. Please remember the simplicity of our life. We are supposed to plant seeds, water seeds. God gives the increase. Everything we do is to impact eternity. Once we move past us, we really can start to see the purpose of our lives. Lord, it's all about you. You, not having the great house and the great family and the perfectly decorated room and whatever. No, I want to see souls get saved for Jesus Christ wherever I'm at. And I'm actually raising missionaries. I'm raising disciples. That's the point of what I'm doing. And then let's go out and go do this for the Lord and always say and do. Worship team, if you want to come forward here. Hey, let's pray this into our lives. Lord, when you call us, help us to accept whatever call that is to whoever it is. That may represent you. Lord, thank you for the Lydia's of this world that are willing to open up their homes, their houses, their goods, their wares to help those. Lord, there is an enemy out there. Help us not to be ignorant of his devices, but we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And Lord, help us during the times of trials and tribulation to still praise you in all we do and say, because the people are listening. Prepare us this week in all we do and say in your name. Amen.